Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> I know I, I just told y'all to sit down, but once you've, I want to ask you to stand uh, as we read God's Word together. Genesis chapter 1, beginning, beginning there in verse 26. <clears throat> All right, and this is what's recorded by Moses in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth. And the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and even the creature that crawls on the earth. I have given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make every wild animal and every bird of the sea and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we examine your word and begin this week to consider this idea of biblical friendship, so within us a deep longing, for the friendship that we were created for. A longing to walk in real fellowship and a belief that our growth hinges on our biblical friendships. Give us grace to see it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. If you're visiting with us here this morning or you're watching us to serve as the the lead pastor here uh, of New Breed Church, 
And you caught us on a good morning uh, because this morning we're beginning a new series, uh, a series that I'm very excited about and that I believe, and, and I don't just say this to say it, but I genuinely believe can have immense value, I believe, will drastically change not only the health of our church, but also the health of our lives. And it is a series, as you may have picked up, entitled Biblical Friendship. Biblical Friendship. And, and again, this is a series we'll spend some time in. It's actually going to span the rest of this year. Now, I know that might sound crazy to you, but just one of those is we'll take a break to focus on this, this little event called the birth of Christ. But, but there's only a few weeks left. So we're going to continue this series throughout the course of the year and probably even into to 2021. And so what we're going to do, just let me try to frame it out for you. We're going to spend this week and probably next week just kind of laying as Christians, or it should matter to us as Christians. And then what we'll do, to kind of after we lay that foundation, is start building upon that foundation for how it is we pursue biblical friendships, what should biblical friendships look like, how is it that we live this out in our day in and day out lives. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into this for the next little bit. And, and I want to say a word about this. I want to take just a minute out. I wanna, and I want to really challenge involved in community groups for this, this series. And there's a reason why. Because we're going to be doing community groups a little bit differently in that there's going to be kind of some supplemental teaching that's going on to aid us as we think through this idea of biblical friendship. And so what we will be working through in our community books is this book. It's a very small book, but a very helpful book. It's called Eight Ways to Cultivate. It's a very helpful book in thinking through how do we walk out friendship? How do we care for one another? But the reason I'm pushing you to get involved with community groups is everything that's in the book is not going to be talked about from the pulpit. And everything that's talked about from the pulpit is not going to be in the book. And so it really is an additional way that we can grow in a deeper understanding of biblical friendship. Because brothers and sisters, as I mentioned, I want us to get it. I mean, clearly, I think you see how significant I think this is, because not only are we going to preach about it, but we're also going to be dealing with it through a separate avenue. Because if you don't, honestly, you'll miss out on some of the teaching regarding biblical friendship that we're going to be walking through. But by way of an introduction, and, and this, this sermon this morning is going to have a lot of introduction in it, I want to begin to answer this question for you this morning. And the question is this, why should we even consider this study? Why should we spend we biblical friendship? And so here at the beginning, I want to kind of give you a few reasons. These aren't all the reasons, but they're, again, we're building a foundation. They're, they're laying the stones for us. Here, here's the first reason. reason. Friendship has been an essential part of the growth of the saints for all time. Friendship has been an essential part of the growth of the saints for all time. We read in a few, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And what's so interesting about Ephesians 4, we see that as we are being built up and built together, growing into maturity in Christ. I mean, I've said this before. You, you, all, you have heard me. I've beat this into you. The Christian life, growth in the Christian life demands fellowship with other believers. 
And I would argue that it it depends on, the measure of our growth depends on the depth of our friendships, of genuine biblical friendships. You know, I would even go so far of meaningful friendships. It was, in, it was in the passage that I had Pastor Lance read earlier from John 15, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. But then he goes on and he ties this love to that of a true friend in the very next verse when he says, no, no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for John 15, 12 is a commandment to be a biblical friend willing to lay down your life for your friends. Throughout Scripture, you see the necessity and expectation of friendship. I mean, think about this. When God speaks of his relationship to Abraham in light of Abraham's faith, this is what's recorded in James 2.23. And this is righteousness, and here it is, and he was called God's what? Friend. I mean, that's incredible that that. God identifies this, this faith in Abraham, this righteousness that is attributed to him because of faith. But not only that, we see friendship in the fact that our salvation, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, has freed us from fellowship with the world and allowed us to be friends with God. James 4, 4 teaches, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes and in it, we can be friends with this world and therefore be enemies of God, or we can be friends of God, and, but we will be enemies to this world. But similarly, the Proverbs, which speak of wisdom and, 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 and righteousness and contrast it with that which is wicked and unrighteous, the Proverbs are riddled with a couple examples. Proverbs 27, verse 6, many of us know this, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy. But the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Oil and incense bring joy to the heart, and the sweetness of... Oh, so many American Christians need to be reminded of that. That the sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. Brothers and sisters, there is an entire psalm of David that is dedicated to the pain of a betrayal of a friend. Psalms in Psalm 55, verses 12 and 13, Now it is not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. It is not a foe who rises up against me, otherwise I could hide from him. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion, and good friend. Out of the depths of David's pain, God saw fit to record a psalm that was about the betrayal of a friend. matters. And the Bible speaks of it probably more frequently than we realize. And as I mentioned, friendship has always been, as we saw in Ephesians 4, an essential part of the growth of the saints for all time. Friendship has always mattered. Additionally, been valued has it been essential to a degree that we don't often value friendship in the American church. The church and believers throughout history have recognized the value and the life-giving need of friendship. 
Drew Hunter in his book, and, and, and a lot of, of my resources come from this book. I'd actually highly recommend it if you want to read along with me. It's called Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. It's an amazing friendship. He recounts this. He recounts how Gregory of uh, Nazianzus and Basil the Great who were early church fathers. So anybody who studied church history, anybody who's gone to seminary, they know these names. I mean, these were early church fathers. And they were well-known theologians. The friendship, their friendship endured through distance and even significant relational challenges. And Gregory once wrote to Basil, and he said this, the greatest benefit which life has brought me is your friendship. And he also wrote this, if anyone were to ask me, what is the best thing in life? I would answer friends. I mean, these are some of the greatest and earliest theologians that the church has known, and he would be friends. St. Augustine preached in a sermon that two things are essential in the world, life and friendship. And he goes on and he says, both must be prized highly and not undervalued. St. Augustine said that the two essential things were life and friendship. Here, have friends. And he who would be happy hereafter must above all things find a friend in the world to come, in the person of God. You know Charles Spurgeon, he's always got, he's always got to bring in Jesus, amen? But I don't want you to miss that he said that anyone who would be happy in this life must have friends. You know, I could go on. I had lists of, of chuff and donors and, and those historical friendships. But what I want you to see is that the Bible speaks frequently of the beauty of friendship. And throughout history, saints have prized the relationship of friends to a degree, again, that we seldom see in the American church today. And why is that? Why is that? Well, that leads to the second reason that we're going to do this study. Our culture makes, bib culture makes biblical friendship difficult but not impossible. It comes up so frequently in my sermons. I know that. I'm aware of it. Sometimes I feel like a broken record. I said it even last week as we were finishing our series on race, justice, uh, race, justice, and the cross. But, but, but it's, so neat. it's a needed reminder because it's the world in which we as American Christians live. We live in an American culture to have biblical friendships. We live in a culture of hyper-individualism, meaning we prize the individual above almost anything else. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. In America today, one of the, the, the it's important, I'm not saying it's not important, but one of the, the hot button terms, right, is self-care. Self-care. And what are you most often told to do for self-care? To get away by yourself and do what you want to do. The pinnacle of self-care. I wonder if the Bible might see it a little differently. Right? Our culture is one that's all about what works for you. It's about having your needs met. It's about reaching your goals and having your desires fulfilled. It is all about the individual. And the problem is that this thinking flies in the face of what Jesus articulates as true friendship. Because remember, no one has greater love. And so even when we think of friendship, we typically think of friendship. I think if we're being honest, this might, you might need to process this throughout the week. Take some time for introspection. I'm telling you to get away, right? Take some time. Think about it. But when we typically think of friendship, we, we typically think of it in terms of what other people can do to meet our needs. 
not what I'm willing to do for expectations of how another person should act if they're going to be my friend without considering those around us and what they might ultimately need. So often in our culture, our pursuit of friendship is lacking because we want to define it all by our terms as the individual. If you're going to be my friend, here's the list of what that looks like. And honestly, part of the reason we struggle with friendship is because But on top of that, we've created a general culture where deep friendships are hindered. Now, this is very important. I mean, I want you to track with me. I know we read Genesis 1 and 2. I promise I'm going to get to Genesis 1 and 2, but but i got to lay some of this out. We have created this general culture where friendships are hindered. You know, to again quote Drew Hunter, he mentions three reasons why friendships are so difficult in our culture. So let me break these down. So he talks about busyness. And one of the things that he highlights that I think any one of us would know is that real friendships, meaningful friendships, they take an exorbitant amount of time, but they're worth it. You know, I like what Randy Stinson, one of the professors at Southern, used to say. He said that friendships are forged. They're never forced. You cannot force a friendship. They are forged in the fires of living life together. And brothers and sisters, that takes time. But the problem, we, the problem we have significant things to try to make ourselves feel the blessings that friendships could bring if we, slew, if we slowed down and took, took time to cultivate friendships. But we make ourselves so busy. But one of the things I love, and I'm going to drop this here and let you wrestle through it, that Drew Hunter said that I thought was very interesting. He said, most people think that they're crazy busy. The problem is most Americans are just lazy busy. Meaning we have the time to be busy. We're not crazy busy. Now, some of us are crazy busy. And maybe that needs to be looked at if we genuinely believe that biblical friendship is one of the paramount things in the life of a believer. We need it to grow to look more like Jesus. Then maybe some other things have to go so that we can cultivate genuine friendships. But I would argue that, yes, busyness is a problem. But as Drew Hunter says, most of us aren't crazy busy. We're lazy busy. As to why relationships and friendships specifically are hindered is he says technology. Y'all have heard me rail on technology. You know, and again, I don't hate it, you know, says the guy who's using an iPad and sitting up here with an iPhone, right? Like I, don't, I don't hate technology, but I think we've got to be really honest about the dangers that it poses specifically <clears throat> to our relationships. So, so Drew uh, Hunter notes in his book kind of why technology is so dangerous, and, and he gives four things that it does. Here's the first is this communication. Here's what I mean by that. I can simultaneously, via social media, share my life with everyone, but honestly, no one. I think that that's communication. I can put updates and statuses and we live by statuses and blurbs and tweets and updates and think we know people, right? But it depersonalizes communication. I don't have to sit down with someone. I don't have to hear their story. I don't have to hear the joys and the pains and yet I can find real friendship. But not only that, technology disengages us from real community. It disengages us from real community. I just want you to know that an online community is not a real community. Because there are things that have to happen in community for it to actually be community. And it can't happen online. But, but again, the problem is so many of us think that we're in. It doesn't mean that. Just because you receive email updates from whoever you're following, it doesn't mean you're in community with those people. And what it does is it disengages us from real community. One of the saddest things that, that 
I see so frequently is a group of people sitting together, all staring at technology disengages us from real community and it's dangerous. And it's so easy to get sucked in, isn't it? I mean, I was guilty of that, full disclosure. We were sitting with some friends from New Breed last night at our house. We've been sitting talking for a while and I found myself just kind of slowly, uh-huh. Oh, but that news alert got me. Then I'm scrolling through the news app. Well, I wonder if Twitter said something about it. Then I'm on Twitter. You get the idea. It's so easy. It disengages. from, And there are real people sitting in front of me, brothers and sisters that I could love and fellowship with. And here I am staring at a screen. It disengages us from real community. But here's the, the third thing that technology can do. It disembodies conversations. It disembodies me having a conversation with you, me hitting the like button or the smiley face or the thumbs up. That's not a real conversation. It removes bodies. It doesn't allow me to sit in front of you. There is something to sitting in a conversation with someone and laughing with them when they laugh, of seeing them weep when they're hurting. And technology disembodies it. It removes the person from a conversation. That's a very dangerous thing. It's a very dense on less personal ways of addressing personal issues. A dependence on less personal ways of addressing personal issues. Let me give you an example. Do you know how many people I have seen repent of sins on a social media status? That should be a personal issue that you work out with these less personal, again, these tweets, these, but we throw them out there and they're less personal ways of addressing real personal issues. Reading a blog, or let me say this, writing a blog about your struggle with loss or pain or heartache will never be the same as sitting with a brother and sister and processing your pain and your, and brothers and sisters, what we have to reckon with is the weight of what we are sacrificing. We are not built to live in isolation. We are not built to live our lives through a screen, and it is taking a devastating toll on us, one that we might not be aware of, but we will see as generations continue to come. You know, I recently watched a fascinating documentary on Netflix. I know some of you have watched it because we've talked about it, but, but it was on Netflix and it was called The Social Dilemma. Social media was taking as well as some of the dangers of it. And again, I'm not saying you can't have social media. I feel like I have to throw a disclaimer. I have Instagram. I have Twitter, right? I'm going to post pictures of my kids. I think they're great, right? I'm going to say dumb things on Twitter because that's what you're supposed to do on Twitter, right? But part of this documentary, one of the things that they noted, which, which was so startling to me, was that there has been a massive leap in anxiety and depression among teenagers that started roughly between 2,000 hospitalizations for non-fatal self-harm, right? For non-fatal self-harm, it was up 62% for 15 to 19-year-old girls. It was up 189% for 10 to 14-year-old girls. jumped 70% in 2011. And, in, and, and the 10 to 14-year-old girls, which they noted was already a fairly low suicide rate, it was up 151%. So they began to ask the question, 
Why has this increased so much? And the mass increase of self-harm and suicide, of anxiety and depression, it began to drastically increase when social media became readily available on cell phones. There is a generation that is being raised, that is being raised on social media. The bulk of the relationships that they live are on their phone. I mean, they talked about in that document how some of these kids have never gone on a date, that romantic, romantic interests are dropping, that kids aren't taking risks anymore, that, that kids getting their driver's license is dropping. This is taking a devastating toll on a generation. And, and what we are seeing is a devastating result of a lack of... But the third thing that Drew Hunter mentions, not only busyness, not only technology, but also mobility is hindering friendships in our culture. And what he was getting at is, again, that deep friendships take time. And we are now so mobile. People move for jobs. They move for schools. They change. I mean, I mean one study I read said that the average person, I can't remember which year it was. I don't think it's the same now. States, we do all these things, and we are moving so much. And what we are failing to realize is that our inability to sit still is making it difficult for us to cultivate meaningful friendships. But I would add a third thing to Hunter's list. So he mentions busyness, technology, and mobility, but I would add one more thing in our culture that I believe is hindering friendship. Which talks. Because right the way that the church, language in our churches is that we, and I've said it, I still say it, right? I'm still going to say it, but I'm going to caveat it from now on, is we have to cultivate community. We need to cultivate community. We need to be a community. We need to be together in our purpose and our mission. And, and that is right, and that is biblical. But the problem is that community is not the same as we're going to look at at the series. I'm just going to be frank with you. are not friendships that every member of New Breed can have with every member of New Breed. Because they take too much time, too much depth, and too much effort. My goal is that we would seek to cultivate three, maybe four deep friends in the community. The goal of the community is to put us in a place where we are focusing on the Lord and worshiping Him, but we are also surrounding ourselves with brothers and sisters where we can cultivate real meaningful friendships. To be frank with you, that was the reason that we're gathering together. The first one being the Sunday morning gathering, the big community, all of us together. But then we break off into community groups, smaller communities. And again, that's not necessarily, some of our community groups might be too big for real friendship to develop between everyone in the group. But there was a third aspect to our discipleship. Do you remember what it was? It was DNA where from our community groups, we were to cultivate relationships with one or two people that went deep. We cultivated real, meaningful friendships. See, I think along with the conversation about community, the church, us included, we need to do a better job of using the language of friend. Real friendship. Now, we're going to have to do some work over the next few weeks of unpacking what a friend actually is because that word means so many different things right now. Family, where we're trying to show a depth to it, but we're going to have to redefine some of that conversation, but I'm getting ahead of myself, all right? You know, there have been countless studies done on the psychological effects of people living in isolation, and people will, in time, go insane without human relationships, and I would contend without real friendships. And our culture makes it difficult, but it is not impossible. And so the reason for this study is because we can and must pursue biblical friendship. The reason that I want to mention this morning for why we are doing this study, and it's the point that we're going to kind of finish up and tie in Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm going to, I took a lot longer in the introduction I thought, so I'm going to try to move through this a little bit faster. Here's the third reason for this study. We are built 
for friendship. Again, it's on this point where I want to spend the remainder of our time, this fact that we are built for friendship, and we see this reality most clearly in the creation account that we read at the beginning of the sermon. And what I want to do is point out three three truths from the text that we read that point to the reality that you and I are built as human beings for friendship. So here's, here's the first point. I'm sorry, I'm going to pick up the pace. Look again at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Now, I know that we just finished our series on the specific reality of it. And the fact that the image of God designates intrinsic worth and value to every human being. But in all honesty, there is so much more involved with being made in the image of God. And I want to take a little bit deeper look at it here for a couple moments. So I want you to note how there in verse 16, it records, let us make man in our image. Let us. And so the question, even in the original language, it's plural. So, So what we see is that more than one person made us in their image and who is it well we get a clue in verse 27 so god created man in his own image he created him in the image of god he created them male and female so what we what do we make of the fact that in verse 26 it says us but then in verse 27 it says god well i would contend for the trinitarian god we serve and whose image we are made in he is forcing us to consider the trinity Just a quick recap. I hope you're tracking with me. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. We believe in Yahweh God who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Right? One, one God, three persons. That is somewhat of a mystery to us. There are tons of analogies people use to try to explain. All we know is one nature and one person. That's it. That's all we've experienced. We have one nature. It's a human nature. We are one person, whoever you are. But God exists as one God in three people. But here's why that matters and why I think that God is, I was going to do a little bit more work on the Trinity, but we'll settle for that for right now. Here's why this matters, because specifically in terms of thinking through the idea of being built for friendship. If you have to understand the relational aspect of the God whose image we are made in. So if you're taking notes, that's one of your fill-in-the-blanks there, right? If we are ever going to understand and have healthy friendships, we have to understand the relational aspect of the God whose image we are made in. And God exists, as we said, in perfect relationship with himself within the Trinity. And everything that I... That's not just something cool to think about. That has implications for how we understand friendship. We are... The, the, the Godhead, the Trinitarian God that we serve is perfectly working together to accomplish the task of receiving the glory that is rightly due his name. Let me give you an example. In John 17, verses four and five, as Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer, he says this, I have glorified me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So in John 17, we see the Son giving the Father glory and in turn, the Father giving the, the Son glory. Now, I would go so far as to say that when we think about the Trinity, we think of that relationship in such a close bond because they are three in one. 
that, that no member of the Trinity ever acts independently of any of, think of what well, Jesus saves me. Jesus saves me. That's true. Jesus saves, but the Bible says that all three members of the Trinity are active in our salvation. We see it in Titus 3, 4 through 6. Listen for all three of them mentioned. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the Spirit on us abundantly, through Christ Jesus, our Savior. You have God saving us as the Spirit is poured out and the Spirit is poured out through Jesus. All three members of the Trinity active because they don't work independently of one another. But it's not just salvation. We see it in creation. Yes, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And nine times out of ten, we think of God the Father. Four, it says that the Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalm 104, verse 30, it says, When, the, when you send forth your Spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. In Colossians 1, we see that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And that in him all things were created and have their being. We see it in John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and it dwelt three members of the Trinity active in creation. We see it in the resurrection of Jesus. Right? Because when Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, he says, this Jesus delivered up, right, crucified, you killed at the hands of lawless men, but God raised him from the dead. But then you've also got to raise life. And then you've got to deal with the fact that in John chapter 2, Jesus himself says, destroy the temple and I will raise it up in three days. All three members of the Trinity active. Our God is one who is constantly living, acting, and moving in relationship. So let's go back to our point. We are made in his relationship and friendship. Therefore, we too are built for friendship. But I think there's even more evidence in the text. And here's the second truth I want you to see from, from what we read there in Genesis 2, or Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the second point. It is not good for us to be alone. CDC did a study on individuals over the age of 50, and, and the study was looking at uh, the effects of loneliness and isolation on adults over 50, and, and listen to what they found. I'm going to read you some of their points that they wrote in the, their conclusions. This is the CDC, Center for Disease Control. Smart people, despite what some may say. Person's risk of premature death from all causes a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. They noted that social isolation was associated with about a 50% increased risk of dementia. Poor social relationships characterized by social isolation and a 32% increased risk of smoke. Social isolation, being lonely. They noted that loneliness was associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. And finally, loneliness among heart failure patients was associated with a nearly four times increased risk of death, 68% increased risk of hospitalization, and 57%. It wasn't just the CDC. The American Psychological Association ran an almost identical study a few years later. And note what they found. They said that loneliness levels have reached an all-time high, with nearly half of adults reporting they sometimes or always feel lonely. 40% of survey participants also reported that sometimes or, or they're full and that they are isolated. 
They go on and say such numbers are alarming because of the health and mental health risks associated with loneliness. According to a meta-analysis, a lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having alcohol use disorder. They also found that loneliness and society. But here's the thing. We don't need these studies to tell us that isolation and loneliness is dangerous because God told us in the first chapter of the Bible, sorry, second chapter, God told us in his word. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now I want you to see something that's very interesting to me. When you look at the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, after every day of creation, God says something. He says, and it was good. But something changed. God created the day after he makes Adam. He created him in the image of God. He created the men and male and female. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, he says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It's the first time God said that. Then it says evening came and morning the sixth day. So why was it that it wasn't very good prior to the creation of both Adam and Eve? Well, for that, we have to look at chapter two of God creating the world, right? It's just the snapshot of this is what he did, day one through seven. But then in Genesis chapter two, the story is told again, but a little bit more detail is given. We learn a little bit more about the process. So it's not that there were two creations. It's Genesis 1's given us the snapshot overview. Genesis 2 goes back and fills in a little bit of the details. And we learn something about the creation. 2 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living, living being. But we cannot forget that Eve was not immediately created. It wasn't like five minutes later God created Eve. We don't know how long Adam existed prior to Eve showing up, but we know that it was longer than a couple minutes. Because look at everything Adam being made. So God makes Adam, but then God moves Adam and he puts him in this garden, right? And he's told to work and cultivate it. But then what God does is he brings everything that he had created to Adam he parades them in front of him and says, whatever you call them, that's what its name's going to be. Listen, God created a few things. All of these things that God has made. And again, Eve is still not there. In all of this, Adam was alone. So I want you to catch this and I want you to follow. I know I saved like the deep stuff for the very end, but track with me. So what we learn is that before the fall, there was a problem in the garden. Before sin entered the world, there was a problem in the garden. Hunter, he picks up on this. And he says, the first problem in human history, the first problem on the pages of Scripture, the first problem in any human life was not sin. It was solitude. Now, let me be very clear. This wasn't an unintentional problem. God did not on purpose. When we think a problem, we think it's through this problem that God is teaching us a lesson. He's teaching us that it is not good for man to be alone. This is so significant that God wanted to teach it to us as he was creating the world. So God creates Eve. And going back to chapter 1, after both Adam and Eve were created, so after they were now what I have made is 
very good. And I would argue that this points to our need for friendship. Now, one of the things I wanted to dive into, so I'm going to, I know y'all tell me all the time, don't apologize for going long, so I'm going to take some liberty here and go a couple minutes extra, okay, because this is very important. Most people would look at that and say, well, how are you getting friendship from this? Isn't this all about marriage? Well, I would contend that those, you should be a friend to your spouse. Your spouse should be your best friend. And so they're not pitted against one another, but in some sense, marriage is the deepest expression of friendship that we can have. But I still think that friendship is somewhat part of the picture because we have to remember that friendship is eternal. Marriage is not. But even in Scripture, the first marriage and friendship are Solomon in a sermon. I'm just throwing that out there. But the bride is speaking and says his mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. This is my love and this is my friend. You see, marriage and friendship are not at odds with one another, but God is creating both in this beautiful this beautiful connection between Adam and lasting friendship. Because again, pro tip, marriage won't work if you're not friends with your spouse. But this lesson, the lesson of the necessity of relationships, of deep friendships, of companionship, is written into the very creation of this world. It is not good for man to be alone. We are built for friendship. But there's one more truth that I want to point three. The blessing of the covenant is meant to be lived out in meaningful relationships. The blessing of the covenant is meant to be lived out in meaningful relationships. So check this out. In the creation account, something interesting happens again on the seventh day. So we read in, in chapter 2, beginning and done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his works of creation. And on this seventh day, something very interesting happens. God establishes what we often call the creation covenant. There's a covenant established in those three verses. They concluded with the statement, evening came and then morning. And what God is doing is he is closing that day. So God created this on the first day. Evening came and then morning. That day is done. Day two, God creates. Comes to the end, there was evening, then came morning. That day's done. But on the seventh day, that statement is not there. God does not say evening came and then morning. Because on the seventh day, God has finished work. Not a rest like we would think of rest. This is not God saying, man, I've been killing it for six days. The ravens are on. Let me sit back, might fall asleep, don't know. No, that's not how God rests. When God enters into rest, it is God entering into a season of enjoyment. Now, track with me here. God is entering into this time of enjoying enjoyment. This creation covenant is meant to exist from that moment for all time where God is enjoying his creation and his creation is enjoying me. And in so doing, by not closing that day, he is establishing a covenant, a covenant where he will delight in what he has made and his creation gets to delight in the God who made them and walk with that God friendship for all time. But there are conditions, like most covenants. And what he calls them to are seen in Genesis 1, 28. After God 
creates Adam and Eve. He blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So the condition by which mankind will experience the blessing of God and walk faithfully with him will be to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule. I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to be your God. Now we know from Genesis 2 that for this to happen, Adam needed a helper. Again, Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Adam could not faithfully fulfill the requirements of the covenant by himself. He needed relent could only be experienced for Adam in relationship. Adam needed Eve to faithfully experience the blessing of the covenant. He needed this relationship. Now church, I'm going to wrap it up right here. Though we are in a new covenant, right? Because we know Genesis 3 and 4 happened. Things got messed. So then became a pattern of covenants, right? The Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, covenant, the Davidic covenant, but ultimately Christ showed up and inaugurates a new covenant. And we are in a new covenant, but the same truth is true of us. We need covenantal relationships. We need biblical friendships because the blessing of the new covenant is meant to be lived out in meaningful friendships. Again, Ephesians ahead, Christ. Speaking the truth from him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. We need one another. Christ saved us so that we could be restored to a relationship with God. That's the gospel we believe, amen? That though we had sinned, though we had rebelled against God, though our sin separates us from God for all eternity, God loves us the life that we should have lived and did not deserve our death. And yet he went to the cross and he drank the full cup of God's wrath and hatred of sin for us. He paid the penalty for our sins, was buried, raised from the dead. And by coming to him in faith and repentance, we can have a a relationship that is restored to God. We are no longer God's enemies because of Christ, but now we can be his friends. But to grow to be more like Christ, you should know that, right? For those of us who are in Jesus, who have been saved, part of the blessing for us now is we get to grow to be more faithful, to look more like Christ. But hear me, that is only done, according to Ephesians 4, in relationship. We need real friendships if we're going to look like Christ. Biblical friends in a relationship, in a real friendship with Jesus and others. And don't miss that blessing. Because the blessing of the covenant is meant to be lived out in real relationships. Again, brothers and sisters, we are built for friendship. But I want to tell you, and if you're watching, that if you are are listening to this and you are not in Christ, but in Christ you can be made new. God still saves people from their sin. He still restores people to a right relationship with him. And then as we walk that out, we will be restored into right relationships with one another. But church, what I wanted to do in this first one, and thank you for allowing me to go a little long, is I just wanted to lay this foundation and remind you of the fact that, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you. God, I thank you for the intricacies with which you made us. God, you are, you are 
so far beyond us. Your, your thoughts are so much higher than ours. Your ways are so much deeper than ours. And God, you have me image bearers. But I pray that we would begin to grasp and wrestle with the truth that part of that image means that we will live in close relationships with others. Being in that Being in those relationships will be the means by which we grow closer to you. And so I pray, Lord, that we would value them and care for them. That yes, we would value community, but we would value going even deeper. Loving one another, doing each other spiritual good, being truly biblical friends. Lord, I pray for our culture that we live in that we would once again renew and revive this understanding of the need for deep friendships, that we wouldn't live our lives behind a screen, but in with others. So God, give us grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.